are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. I'm your host, Rob McClure. Explorative. Inviting. Balanced. Linda Antas is a composer, flautist, and music technologist who creates works for instruments and voice, electronics, visual music, and interactive installations. Her pieces are inspired equally by the natural world, intuition, and technology. She enjoys combining art and science because to her, not only do they both possess a kind of magic, but they are the tools with which humans express and understand the deepest parts of being human. She lives in the Gallatin Range just outside Bozeman, Montana, with her husband Mike, two highly amusing Labrador retrievers, and as many freshwater tropical fish as healthily fit into 100 gallons of water. Uh, we're going to start off with your piece, uh, Iridescence. And I first heard this piece, I think, because um, a couple of years ago when I was still in China, I put out a call to all my Facebook composer friends who I knew composed fixed media pieces and just said, hey, can you send me your stereo pieces? Because my, chi- my, my students in China need something to diffuse because we were working on diffusion at the time and uh you sent this piece along and one of my students chose this work to do so that was kind of the first time i heard it and i mean let's talk about the subject matter of this piece what causes i guess scientifically what causes iridescence oh my goodness Oh, this is, this is my, my fears come true, right? That you ask a question that I can't answer in complete uh, scientific detail here. Um, well, I guess at, at the core of it was what interested me in it as a concept, which, which is that it is the, literally the physical structure within the material itself um, mm-hmm. that causes it to refract light. So I guess probably the simplest, most obvious uh, example would be like a, a prism, right? Because of the angles right. th- that that material is built at, it ends up uh, sorting light from, you know, white light into the various colors. Um, and so it fascinates me that, you know, from the time we're little kids, we say, oh, a rainbow, how cool is that? Um, and there may or may not be, you know, other cultural or religious connotations behind that image, but whether or not there are, it's, it's an amazing thing. Um, right. and, and of course, to see, you know, a spectrum of colors in a place where you're not expecting it, whether it's, you know, spilled oil or a, a cuttlefish or, you know, uh, s- certain minerals that do it is just an amazing thing. And so I think as a composer, uh, you know, I distinctly remember as a flutist coming up in, you know, high school band, hopefully you can write a nice melody, right? Just from that experience. So I found, you know, I found as a, a, you know, a composition student that structuring your ideas into something coherent and interesting and logical, at least for me, was actually much harder than, you know, coming up with some decent material to structure in the first place. So I guess it's, it's maybe the title is kind of a nod to, uh, my love of structuralism, perhaps you could say. <laughs> so how did you, how did you take this idea, this, you know, um, the idea of iridescence and how you were seeing it in the natural world and, and how, how did you take that and apply it musically to the sounds you were using? Well, um, 
And gosh, this this might um, uh, this might be a, a busting of a bubble here. I I didn't start with that as a concept or a title. Um, mm. And honestly, okay. I I rarely have a title when I first start a piece. So mm-hmm. um, I I. You know, I most of the time find a very fitting title at some point after the piece has started. Um, that makes right. sense given the way I'm working or just a, a concept or idea that I've been thinking about. But I'm pretty sure when I started that piece, it was not called Iridescence. And as a matter of fact, I could find you proof on my hard drive because um, uh, I, the the logic, you know, the folder that I started the mix in, you know, after compiling my sounds um, is actually sure. called Fizz. Uh, Fizz. So okay. the original, yes, the original title of the piece uh, was Fizz. And that may likely have been... Uh, the title had I not come up with something more poetic, you know, one of my, one of my teachers in grad school would talk about, um, you know, there's the materials and there's your structure and there's how you're creating your sounds or how you're manipulating the audio you record. And then there's the poem of the piece that, Mm, that every mm -hmm. piece has kind of a distilled meaning. And it doesn't necessarily mean in the case of abstract art music, like a specific meaning that it's, a love song or it's a yearning for a lost place or lost thing kind of song, but just um, the ideas and the concepts behind it. So the reason it's called fizz is that that first sound in the piece is literally a sample of Le Croix. It is (laughs) the cheapest carbonated water that money can buy. Le Croix. Um, Yes, it's it's a very classy piece. Yeah, we've been getting La Croix uh, just recently. Well, I mean, we've never really drank it before, but we're trying to get off, you know, uh, soda and everything. And that just seems like, okay, well, it still has a little bit of fizz, still has a little bit of flavor, but, you know, not all the bad for you stuff. And uh, it's my favorite thing uh, when my when my wife says, oh, can you can you get me, uh, you know, one one of those carbonated waters? Oh, do you mean La Croix? <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so other, that, uh, you know, listen, next time you crack one open, enjoy the sound of it and it will make up for all the sugar <laughs> that you're not getting. Exactly. So other than the fizz uh, taken from that, what were some of the other sound sources you used in this piece? Tibetan singing bowls. Definitely. Um, there's a moment probably about halfway through, uh, where you hear kind of this, uh, long ringing kind of timbre. Um, that was that, mm-hmm. uh, while, while you have that fizzing la croix there, you should, uh, probably do other things with it. So outside of close miking it, um, I also had some small little, uh, oh, they're the flat little glass rocks that you put in the bottom of a flower arrangement. Okay. So yeah. there are definitely some samples of that going kerplunk uh, into the Lacroix, and um, that's a great question. You're gonna you're gonna make me look. I I feel the need to give you an actual answer, but you know, so that's how the piece started. You know, while while I'm digging around here on this hard drive, that's how the piece started. Uh, really was. Um, and I think that's pretty common for composers that do what we do. 
is, you know, just collecting sounds that your experience tells you should be interesting once you run them through all the processes that you typically run your sounds through to get something even cooler than what it was in the first place. Right. The, you know, recognizing that a particular sound has the richness to go through that process and still come out being something cool. Or, or like I say, even potentially, if all goes well, it's something even better uh, than it right. than it was originally. Yeah, totally. Um, when you were in, in your notes, you talked about uh, the the processes that you were um, that you were running these sounds through that parallel the diverse directions, angles, fluctuations. What kinds of things are happening there, these these processes that you are, you know, taking sounds through in an attempt to get that either fizzy or shimmering or or kind of uh, gl- glittering uh, sound world that takes us closer to iridescence? You know, I think we all have kind of our collection of processes that for whatever reason just resonate with us and that we just almost always think give cool results. Um, and so I've got to confess, I am big into granular based, um, time stretching. So there's Mm -hmm. definitely, like I say, that first sound is basically look, run through sound warp. Um, so granular based, uh, time stretching and it also does uh, transposition, uh, algorithm. I'm also really, really into, um, analysis resynthesis techniques. So mm. there are a lot of, uh, you know, phase vocoding where I'm choosing to resynthesize any number of the bins in the analysis using, you know, one or more sine waves built up uh, to kind of reconstitute the sound. And to me, you know, that process of, uh, you know, using Fourier, uh, Fourier analysis means that you can really do pretty much anything with that sound, right? Yeah. Because, uh, you know, timbre is based in part, obviously, on on frequency and on the amplitudes of the individual frequencies in the sound. But just like a prism allows you to break that white light down into a rainbow of colors, um, the Fourier transform allows you to take you know, the most complex sound that possibly exists and pull out one single mm-hmm. sine tone out of that. So to me, that's, it's kind of like a sonic prism, right? You're taking something more complex and breaking it down into its component parts. Um, and so I think, you know, maybe not so much the time stretching, but definitely the uh, working with the Fourier analysis and uh, resynthesis is to me, you know, kind of like what iridescence itself does. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the Fourier stuff, like that's as I've been doing more and more with um not a, not only fixed media but with live electronics, I just find myself going to that so so often instead of like, yeah, go out and record and record stuff, but then it goes through this, you know, I don't know, n step process where you know, the FFT usually comes in at some point because I find myself with that desire, like, well, I want to do this with the sound, but if I if I just do it in its original state, it's gonna like 
it, it doesn't allow you the, the same type of control that resynthesis allows. So yeah, I've been, mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot, a lot of that recently. It, it's, it's kind of one of, one of my, one of the tricks in my bag that I'm, I'm not, I don't think I'm going to give up anytime soon. <laughs> oh, I mean, look, I, I learned it over 20 years ago. Uh, yeah. and I think I've used it in every electronic piece I have ever done. Uh, just that ability, you know, as, as cool as, as straight up down sampling can sound on a lot of sounds, you're right. There's that restriction in part that eventually after you downsample too far, you're going to start to degrade the sound and it's going to be muddy and it's going to, you're going to lose amplitude and it's just not going to be that pretty. So just that magic, you know, when I tell my sound synthesis, like, you know, remember when we were working with downsampling and you know, what's the relationship between pitch and speed and they all know well if you play it you want it higher you're gonna have to play it faster and your sound's gonna get shorter i'm like you know we get to the fft stuff and i say aha you know not (laughs) necessarily true because you can completely divorce um frequency from time you know you're breaking you're going from the time domain to the frequency domain you know back and forth between those two things and it's uh, it's just really fascinating to be able to do that for sure. Absolutely. I thought one thing you said in your notes about this was, was a really beautiful sentiment. And you said, it is only by looking at something from different angles that we fully appreciate its beauty and complexity. And that's basically what iridescence is. I mean, you have to change your point of view to be able to see all of those different colors say like one example you gave was uh in a in in like a bubble right and you know i i honestly (laughs) one of the hardest parts of this assignment was picking the three words that would describe me or my music (laughs) that was really tough and i remember in my final my final batch of six words um and a lot of the words were a word slash another word that were often not necessarily words that most people would think were the same word. But I think one right. of my final, uh, one of my final word slash words was personal slash spiritual. Um, mm. and, and I left that out in favor of the ones I submitted, um, because it sounded silly to me, like who out there is writing music that will, you know, tell anyone on a podcast or any other circumstance, my music isn't personal. (laughs) You know, I don't take it personally. (laughs) You shouldn't take it personal. You shouldn't take it personally. It wasn't meant for people, right? Who says that? So that in the end sounded like a really like stupid word to describe my music. But, you know, I think fundamentally, uh, regardless of whether I, I were a, a dentist or a composer or anyone else, I would like to hope that I have the same basic goals as a human being, uh, which are to understand everything around me, whether it yeah. is my fellow human being on the other side of the world or sometimes just as difficult my fellow human being that I see every day at work or in my house or... Um, you know, just that idea of being, uh, you know, I joke that, uh, that, you know, uh, intelligent minds are easily amused, right? So I think part of that, mm-hmm. uh, curiosity and part of that desire to understand everything from humanity to, you know, a rock, 
um, for me personally slash spiritually um, is all linked. And, you know, it seems obvious to me that that would come out in my music or as one of the fundamental aspects of my music. Even though I do a lot of, you know, techie things, technology is just uh, kind of a branch of our humanity. It's not separate from it. it and, like, and like any tool, it can be used, you know, for better or for worse. So we can kind of use that inquisitive scientific mind that, you know, is there in our human, uh, in our human selves to either help connect us further to our humanity and the people and things around us in the natural world, or we can use it to completely do the opposite and divorce ourselves from it. So, you know, it's, it's the artists or even if you're not an artist, it's the individual's choice to choose how you're going to use any tool that, that you have at your disposal. Let's listen to this piece right now. And uh, you wrote this in 2013. And this is, again, Iridescence for Fixed Media.
So let's talk about your next piece. And this piece is for flute and electronic sound that you did just two years ago. And it's called Meru Tracing Earth. And you said in your notes that the instrumental part was created through sonifying GPS data. So can you unpack that a little? What process did you go through to create the flute lines using data? You know, first, let me just preface the project by saying that uh, I, I need nature. I need wilderness. I need to get out there and get dirty and look over my shoulder to see if there's a bear coming at me. It, it's just something that, that my spirit really needs to feel at peace and fulfilled. And I've always found it um, really ironic that I am on the computer all day doing my job. Mm -hmm. When I get home, if I have any energy left, what do I do? I go right back to the computer and I sit down and I start making art. And it just seemed for so long that I wished I could find a way to um, find some way to resolve those two loves into something that might yield a better work-life balance. Um, right. And so when I was in grad school at the University of Washington in Seattle, uh, that was the first time I'd ever really lived in the mountains. And you know, I was, I was new to really being that immersed in nothing but electronic music. And I didn't have a computer at home. Um, it wasn't probably extremely common back then for people to have a computer at home, um, because of the expense mainly, especially if you're in mm -hmm. grad school. Um, so I would literally just, you know, like a lot of good grad students be on campus in the lab doing my thing 12 hours a day. And all the yeah, 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 all day, all night, as long as you can do it. And then some, uh -huh. right. Um, <laughs> I would, I remember, you know, going home on the bus, driving North, you know, to the Northern edge of town where a grad student could afford to live. And if I looked to the left on my way home, uh, there was the Olympic range and on my right was the cascade range. And when I looked over for a split second, I always saw waveforms. Right. Mm, For whatever mm, reason, yeah. my overtired brain would perceive the, the curves of the mountain ridges as being the top part of a waveform. Um, and I think that's where I first started to see kind of dramatic trajectories of some kind in mountain peaks. So when you combine, you know, when I used to, I was taught as a student to graph out your ideas, graph out your works. And, you know, for me, sometimes that just meant making one graph that was density and putting another graph or superimposing activity uh, or another graph that would be, you know, instrumentation or, you know, density or something like that. And so I think it was natural for me to look at these squiggles in the mountains and to see some kind of map of a piece, right? So when you mm -hmm. take that from grad school life plus post-grad school life, really wanting to combine, um, you know, nerdy explorations of sound <laughs> and nature, uh, you know, when I got the idea for this piece, I, I, I just, 
it felt good. I mean, just the idea. I mean, before I even started making any music and before, you know, I ran that first chunk of code and said, oh my God, this makes stuff that actually sounds a lot like my normal music. Um, so sonification, to get back to your original question, um, and, and I also need to make the distinction that, you know, original kind of purist sonification um, is where you take scientific data uh, and express your range of data via sound. Uh, because in many cases, depending on how many different streams of data you're looking at, there's, there's no graph that can do that well. There's no pie chart. There's no 3D mm -hmm. graph. Yeah. There's, no, there's nothing that can adequately represent you know, what the scientist needs to mull over. And so, you know, sonification originally, uh, like I say, the purest form of it um, is to help scientists study their data. And I think that's fascinating. But of course, I'm doing this as a work of art. You know, I want it um, to be stimulating for me and maybe an audience member that would care about that. But I want it to be equally a piece that somebody who didn't care about that or who didn't know how the piece was created, I wanted them to be able to enjoy it just as well. Right. At the end of the day, it still has to be music. At the end of the day, you're still expecting and or wanting people to sit down in a chair and, and listen to the whole nine minutes of it, right? Um, so I tried right. a lot of things and just that part was a really, um, you know, amazing learning experience. Uh, and I've got to say, as sonification goes, again, if you're being a purist and you have eight data points, you know, coming from across the galaxy, uh, it's a pretty simple thing. Um, but in uh, two of the three sections, well, in three of the three sections, no, two of the three sections, <laughs> I'm using um, altitude as pitch. So... You know, pretty obvious, the higher the altitude, the higher the note's okay. going to go. And the other thing that a GPS device does for you is that it takes that measurement of um, your heading, your coverage of ground, uh, altitude, all of that. It takes, um, you know, every so many seconds. So it can actually track on a hike or, you know, any walk around the yard, um, how fast you're going, um, what your altitude is. Um, like I say, how much distance you're covering, wh what your speed is, what your heading is. So what direction, you know, north being zero and it wraps back around to 360 degrees. Um, so in the first and third section, altitude is pitch. And in all three sections, speed is rhythm. Speed is speed. Um, in the second section, uh, so the first section was based on a hike from... Uh, a pass in the Bridger range, um, well, from our campsite to the pass and back. The second one, uh, my sister was visiting and she brought her spare kayak because, um, you know, there was a point where she realized that I, I probably wasn't going to spend the money on a kayak, but I really love to go kayaking. So thanks. Uh, she, she bought a spare uh, so that I could go with her. So she brings her two kayaks and you know, we were originally setting off just, just to goof off, goof off and go uh, float the Ruby River. And, you know, there's always that academic guilt that, like, I, I, I could be working. And then I thought, well, wait, yeah. wait, if you just take the yeah. GPS and press go, you're technically working, right? So mm -hmm. that, that yeah. one, we did, like, a nine-mile float on the Ruby River, uh, which is farther, farther west and a little south of here. And... Um, 
That one, I just, I for giggles, ran the code. What would it be like if I mapped heading onto pitch? So in that section, it's literally, you know, from zero okay. to 360 degrees. What span of notes do you want it to cover? So, you know, facing, facing ahead is, is a middle C and you go up the chromatic scale as you spin your desk chair around. So all the different pitches in that middle section, mm-hmm. yeah. which you can, you, can pretty, you can hear pretty clearly where the sections are in the piece, but that's, that's based on heading uh, as the pitch. So, I mean, it's, it's fairly simple. That's the, the, the idea or the mappings behind it. And I tried a lot of mappings. I tried, you know, mm-hmm. high altitude is low pitch and uh, low altitude is high pitch. And I tried, you know, reversing the rhythms. You know, um, I tried a lot of things. So there's a lot of exploration involved in the final product. That was something I was going to ask about. You know, what I know that when I've taken non-musical data and used it in a musical way, there, there's been, you know, some, a little massaging, you know, to either, either the data that gets spit out or the, you know, the algorithm that you're running it through or the mapping, you know, any of those things. So it seems like you, you had to try a lot of different mappings to get what you wanted. But then at the end of the day, when you found the one that at least, you know, maybe satisfied 80% of your desires, did you kind of just put your faith in the process or did you mess with it a little bit? Um, you know, there wasn't really a lot of messing, honestly. Um, which, you know, when that, when I ran that first piece of code and, and listened to what was being output, I was, (laughs) I was pleasantly surprised, I guess you could say, you know, both at how much like Mm -hmm. music it sounded and how much like my music it sounded, you know? So, I wonder, even though right. most of it is a fairly straight up reading, if I'm fooling myself into thinking this sounds like my music or if I liked it because I thought it sounded like my music or if I liked it um, because my code ran, you know, there's, <laughs> there's always that too. Yeah. The, <laughs> it the works. Biggest, yes, it works. I'm so smart. I know. Yes. Um <laughs> Yeah, the, the biggest tweak I had to do is obviously when you're doing these, uh, when you're doing a GPS track, it's tracking all the time and never stopping. And um, mm-hmm. one, of my, one of my adjectives I gave you was balanced. So um, especially since you're writing for a human player, you, you want to have breaks for them physically, but even more importantly... Sure. Um, you know, cause performers are tougher than they lit on sometimes even more importantly was that the listener would have the kind of breaks that listeners need in a piece to kind of digest or reflect on what they've heard before and where that should hang or where it's kind of located in that all important structure. Right? So the biggest tweaks I did were stripping out notes for rests. And, and honestly, yeah. in, in the three sections that make up the piece, there wasn't really a lot of tweaking I had to do to make it, in, in, my, in my opinion, musically interesting. Um, and I did that in part, you know, the same way we work with any musical materials. Um, 
we, we, you know, the, the basics, right? Freshman composition class, you do more of what works and less of what doesn't. Hey, that was good. We're not sick of it yet. Let's reuse that. Or, you know, of, of all the stuff that you've brought me this semester, this is the least interesting 30%. So how about you just use the good stuff, right? Right. So, you know, by that yeah. same <laughs> logic, you know, sometimes we're smart and we listen to the advice we give our undergrads, right? Um, but by that, by that same uh, piece of advice. Sometimes, yeah. <laughs> sometimes, I know. Um, so, the, but, you know, by that same advice, uh, the parts that were removed for clarity or structure or breathing, however you want to think of it, were the things that I just thought were less interesting or less germane to the piece. So I, I guess that's where the personal mm-hmm. stamp is put on it, right? That I, I, in the end, had the editorial um, clout to say, no, measures 45 through 49, you are officially hereby a rest. You know, you're just, you're just not cutting it with measures 20 through 30, you know? Why can't you be more like measures right. 20 through 30? Yeah, so that was, that was honestly, um, the tweaking I did for the most part was things like that. And, um, and I think actually the last section, um, <laughs> over the course of doing this experiment, uh, I realized that humans hike roughly 60% of what a dog hikes. Because if you've ever hiked with a dog, they run oh ahead. And just when you yeah, think they've been they eaten really by do, a cougar, yeah. yeah, they run back to you like, human, are you ever going to come? Or, you know, we smell something on the top of this ridge. So while you walk 10 feet ahead, we're going we're gonna to run up 60 feet and then run b- right back down and we're going to meet you four trail feet from here. Um, so, so, uh, at some point during the project, I started doing half the track. If it was a repeat, like if it was a there and back hike, um, do part of the hike with it on a human, uh, and part of the hike with it in my then, what was she about nine month old lab, uh, labs backpack. Um, so the last section is actually my dog at a dog park, which is in the foothills, um, and it's a great dog park because uh, it's it's all hills. It's it goes up, it goes down, and I think for that part, um, what I actually did with the data um, is that I mapped the pitches and the speeds onto the x-axis of my computer screen, and then I actually improvised a course over that data with the mouse. So. I could actually, mm, okay. I was, I was sort of improvising on the data with the mouse mouse. And that's, that's how that third section came to be. So I did, I did, you know, have a little fun or a little spontaneous, uh, spontaneous composition in the piece. I think the thing that, I mean, when you, when you said that, you know, you ran the code and it came out and it sounded, you know, oh, well this kind of sounds like my music. You know, that I think that is when I've done this kind of stuff before that that those are always happy moments when, oh, well, I have I have set up this algorithm in such a way that is that it is going to spit out what I normally would want to hear. But exactly. I think the other thing that is that that is so interesting about, you know, doing this process are the things that come out that 
I wouldn't normally, like my instincts would not normally gravitate towards. And I, mm-hmm. I kind of view this activity as a way to kind of expand my own likes and dislikes and to, I mean, there, there was one project where I basically, I really, really trusted in the fact that, you know, I, I designed the engine that's going to spit out this stuff. So it is like, I had no qualms about feeling like, oh, this is mine. But at the same time, I used it as an opportunity because I did feel like I was in a kind of a compositional rut to use what came out and and go to the parts that, wow, I really wouldn't do this, but <laughs> maybe that's okay. Oh, it's totally okay. Um, you know, when I was learning uh, algorithmic composition, it was really stressed to me that Beethoven used algorithms. You know, um, mm-hmm. the idea that computer code is just yep. a way of describing in words that a computer understands a, a process for something. And when you compare, well, you know, what is sonata form? Well, there's a theme. There's a theme in a key of fifth away. And then you kind of splice and dice that. And then, you know, it's formulaic. It's, formula- it's formulaic to Yeah, totally. A lot of people might not like to think about. So, yeah, um, you know, the coding itself is part of the creative activity and is part of writing the music. And hopefully if your coding chops and your aural skills... Uh, are well developed, or um, or you're at least paying attention to them. Then there is totally that aspect that that I'm writing this code that writes music, or I'm a b- better way to express that. I am writing code that is designed to express musically what I would do, or like you said, do yeah. something you wouldn't do. Right. I think that's a little easier to do in code than if you write something, you know, out of the top from the top of your head. Right. Right. Like to like to sit mm-hmm. down at, at your desk with the staff paper and go, let's see, what wouldn't I do? Uh, right. Think, you know, because we know more, much more about what we would do or what we have done than what wouldn't I do. But yeah, that, that right. whole process of, you know, kind of. Uh, like I say, some of the ex- experimentation was a lot more um, involved, a lot more uh, kind of stochastic processes on the data. Um, I ended up not using mm-hmm. those. Um, but whether you're kind of uh, filtering the data through the code, or whether you're writing the code that that generates music not based on a data set, um, it's still it's still you writing the music you know you still uh, you still have to tell the computer what it's doing you know well you know do something random well how random random between where and where how often should i do something random right that's a that's a choice that's a choice you're making in the code right so getting to the the title of this piece um i i read that in, in your notes that meru peak is a mountain in a region of India, but Mount Meru is something else. So what, how, you know, how did you kind of come to, you know, you're look, you're looking at mountains, you're seeing waveforms, and then you're seeing, uh, you know, contours and trajectories that can be produced melodically. But how did you come to the, this, uh, 
you know, this mountain in India and then this other mythical mountain as the thing that is kind of conceptually driving the piece? Well, I think I think the actual um, physical mountain, I, I, I should have uh, put something in the program note about for disambiguation, see, um, because it was definitely, um, <laughs> you know, I, I definitely have, um, I've been a practicing Buddhist for golly, a couple decades now. Um, mm-hmm. it, uh, it was really amazingly powerful for me. Um, and you know, when I said earlier about, you know, personal slash spiritual was a word that I, you know, took off my list of my three adjectives. Um, right. You know, lately since, um, what was the first piece I did that in? Well, Windhorse from 2012. Windhorse is also a Tibetan uh, Buddhist figure. So again, just drawing, um, drawing into my works what uh, is a part of my overall psyche and makeup um, that Buddhism and related uh, philosophies or religion, if you want to call it, um, influencing my work. Um, and so, mm-hmm. you know, there's the actual peak, um, but in Buddhist cosmology, um, Mount Meru is uh, a, a mythical five peak mountain. Um, it's, all, it's, also, um, it's also a part of the Hindu and Jain tradition as well. Uh, but in that cosmology, it's considered to be the center of the physical and spiritual universes. So boom, right there, when we talk about, you know, my connection to nature and the wilderness and mountains specifically, Mm, um, you know, there it is. Um, So it's supposed to be in the middle of the earth and it's supposed to, uh, in the cosmology, extends uh, beneath the surface of, of all the great waters. And it's used as a metaphor for size and stability. Um, so really just that blending of nature and the spiritual, um, the spiritual and the personal, the personal and my music. I thought, I thought it was a good, uh, good title. Again, um, I, I, it was definitely after the piece was started that I made that connection sure. as the poem of the piece, you know, started to form in my mind. Um, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know how mm-hmm. you were with naming your little things that you got to name, but, uh, you know, you can have, you can have puppy names all picked out. You go and you meet the puppy and you're like, there is no way we're naming this dog X, right? <laughs> like when you see the personality, right. you're like... I don't care that, you know, I have a beloved grandmother that we were going to name this daughter after. It, it's just wrong for her, right? So for me, the title right. of a piece, like I said, it, a piece for me very often doesn't start with necessarily a, a concept or um, a title. Um, I, I kind of have to look into its eyes for a little bit to see what's a fitting name for this. Mm. So, I mean, that there's yet another case I know where the, um, where the title came after the piece was started. Um, sure. But, you know, between those connections, between um, wilderness and, and spirituality and, um, and just the fact that you're, you're literally, you know, Meru colon tracing earth. The piece is a tracing of the earth, which literally I tracing earth. It is, which, which I thought was, you know, just a really beautiful thing 
You know, like if I could, if I could, if I could taste a sunset, what would it taste like, right? You can say, if I could hear, if I could hear the Bridger Range, or if I could hear a float down the Ruby River, or if, if I could hear, you know, my dog running around in a dog park, what would that sound like? I, that's just fascinating to me too. So we're going to hear this piece now. It's called Meru Tracing Earth. And uh, who is the flute player we're going to hear on this recording? Uh, the flute player is Linda Antas. Oh, you. Okay. Me. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs>
So let's talk about your next piece. This is called Amavasya. And uh, this piece is for bas- originally for bassoon and electronics. And mm-hmm. then you also have a bass clarinet for an electronics yes. version. Yes. And this piece also has a connection to Hinduism. And, uh, you know, the last piece we were talking about had a connection to Buddhism. So, you know, you were kind of talking about it before, but uh, how, basically, how does this, um, is it, is, is this another piece where you are expressing your connection to Buddhism and Hinduism and, and kind of that side of the world? Um, you know, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, as I said before, when I, when I did discover, um, Buddhism and Buddhist meditation, it was very, very, uh, life-changing for me, um, in, in, in the best of ways. (laughs) Um, you know, I, I, maybe it's just me. I, I don't think it's just me. I think there are a couple few of us out there, um, where, our education, um, as well-meaning as it is, if we take it too seriously, we forget that we're there learning this stuff because we love it, and we turn hmm, it against... Yeah. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. You're one of the other two or three people out there. We forget that love and that passion and that joy that we take in things and we turn it around back onto ourselves as an opportunity um, for judgment and to be self-critical and to put all our faith in ourselves as living, breathing things into how well we do some obscure task. Um, And... And it took me a really long time post-grad school to get over that. And one of the things that really helped, yeah. one of the things that really helped me was, um, I, and I don't remember whether it was an interview I saw or heard or something I read, but the Dalai Lama was talking about, I guess someone had asked him, you know, don't you get nervous with these hundreds and, you know, even thousands of people listening to you talk, don't you worry you're going to explain something less well than you could or stumble over your words or maybe say something that someone doesn't agree with or that they find offensive. And his answer was, and you know, this is in the Buddhist tradition, um, you're really only, you know, they call it throwing bad karma if your intent is to harm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you accidentally say something that brings up a bad memory for someone or they interpret it the wrong way, then you as an individual haven't really done a negative action. You haven't really done anything wrong. So what the Dalai Lama said in response to that question was, you know, I'm here to help. I'm doing my best. I'm I'm trying to help people. You know, to paraphrase, I'm paraphrasing. I'm, I'm giving a gift. And... You know, not, and this is me talking now, not all gifts are received as well as they should be. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think this trend is kind of the the uh, post-educational, this is what I have to give. It's neither right nor wrong. It's a reflection of me. I hope somebody enjoys it. If more people enjoys it, 
enjoy it, I'm not going to do it anymore. If fewer people enjoy it, I'm not going to do it any less. I'm putting it out there as an offering. It, it is what it is. And so to me, um, that really helps me put, I think, a healthy distance between myself and my work. Um, and so this, I guess, is you know, sort of a series for me that what I do is a personal practice that as a person I have, I have um, you know, a spiritual side of some kind, whether or not you affiliate that with any organized philosophical thought that anyone else ever had, it, it honestly doesn't matter to me, right? It matters mm-hmm. to me that you realize that you know, I think it's very beneficial for a lot of people to realize that they're more than a pile of flesh and bones with some blood squirting around inside, right? Um, but kind of, you know, later in life, just, just you know, coming to terms with what I do and what the potential power of it is for me and for other people that have kind of helped me to look at creating art um, kind of in a, in a kinder and gentler way than I did you know, mm-hmm. in, in school and for several years after that. So, you know, the last line of the program note is literally this work is an offering to my ancestral as well as musical predecessors. You know, and also just, you know, coming to a point in life where I'm, I got a few gray hairs and, uh, you know, thinking about your personal history and your personal lineage and your personal trajectory and, you know, really it not being until I was in my 30s, you know, and thinking, God, man, that high school English teacher, I... I got to tell them they really mattered, you Mm -hmm. know, or, um, when I was back home this summer earlier, um, they had had a a big party for my high school band director and I couldn't go, but I was able to talk to him on the phone and just to reconnect with this guy, you know, and to tell this 82 year old that was my band director, you know, 20 something years ago, like, Hey, did, did you know, I'm a music professor now? (laughs) <laughs> like, oh, do you still play flute? Oh, yeah, I still play flute, you know. Um, so it's sort of a it's sort of a, a tip of the hat to all of that, you right? Know, to to the things that formed you and that made you what you are, in combination with all the things you aren't and all the things you want to be, um, and all those just amazing things that that the course of a life contains. From the previous few pieces, I mean, and and you brought this up in the very first piece we listened to, uh, you're kind of interested in these kind of slowly moving textures and and that connects definitely to the, um, you know, granular uh, stretching and granular freezing uh, with the electronics and that these textures kind of slowly breathe in a way. And I was actually wondering if that was somehow connected to a personal meditation practice. Oh, the idea that the sounds breathe. Mm-hmm. Ooh, not consciously. Um, you know, breathing is what keeps us alive and being alive is what keeps us interesting. And I think, <laughs> you know, long drony sounds, uh, long drony sounds, um, you know, that kind of evolve over time, um, mark time via timbral progression. Mm-hmm. And I think, that's fascinating um, that rather than a string of discrete um, events that, you know, sound or timbre can be interesting um, in the way it shifts from one thing to another and back again. Um, 
Great question. No answer. <laughs> there you go. Okay. <laughs> it just it just seemed to me that um, you know when I've listened to to pieces, you know, for instance, by like Pauline Oliveros, and she, it seems like her her rhythms kind of progress at the rate of very slow breathing. And it is somehow in connection with, you know, it's a very human connection in a very inhuman thing, electronics. But I guess as you were saying, you know, before electronics are innately human in a way because they were created by us. And I guess it's our job as to composers Mm -hmm as composers to pull out the humanness in this seemingly inhuman thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there are just, there are just, um, you know, music is made, um, for the most part. And I'm going to be really general about all the music out there in the world, including, you know, things, uh, that I haven't yet written, um, is made by and for humans. So I think, you know, hopefully a human is conscientious that you're writing it for another human and that your awesome, you know, uh, algorithmic scheme that you find fascinating might not be enough to make it fascinating to somebody there in the concert hall. Right. So I think, um, I think there are, you know, natural biological expanses of time and sure, the length of a breath, you'd think that'd be a pretty... um, a pretty obvious one. Mm-hmm. When we were in uh, in graduate school, um, a colleague of mine asked me to write a bassoon piece for him. I mean, he was an amazingly talented bassoonist. And for whatever reason, um, and I have a few I could name, but we don't need to go there. Um, and it has nothing to do with him. Uh, for whatever reason, it took me, you know, a couple decades to getting around to actually writing this piece for him. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually composed in 2015 for Ryan Hare, um, who is currently faculty at Washington State University in Pullman. Uh, he is uh, composition and bassoon uh, faculty there, and he plays... Um, plays a lot of bassoon all around the area. Um, in our little part of the world, um, it's really common, I know from my colleagues here in Bozeman, that um, they play with the Billings Symphony and they play with the Helena Symphony and they play with the Bozeman Symphony and they might even play with the Glacier Symphony, which is, you know, five and a half hours from here up in Kalispell. Um, I think he may or may not be a little better off as far as driving miles to get to gigs, but he does play with the Washington Idaho Symphony and I think the Spokane Symphony and um, it does a lot of orchestral playing um, mm. in you know the I- Idaho uh, Montana Washington State area and uh, is just really a fantastic player and a super brilliant guy. So it was composed um, for him. Um, you know, the older I get, the more practical I get. Um, and it kind of struck me that there aren't as many bassoonists as one might hope out there that are really jonesing to do a piece for bassoon and electronics. Right. (laughs) So I was looking it over and I thought, you know what, um, for a clarinetist, even on the big clarinet, and I'm saying this as a flutist who plays alto and bass and as a saxophonist who used to play uh, tenor as well. For a clarinetist, you know, that typically gets the faster notes, this is a not that hard a piece at all. And oh my gosh, look at the range. 
it works perfectly. <laughs> so I thought I could maybe get a little more mileage out of it uh, by making uh, the bass clarinet version. And that's honestly something I've never done. I've never reorchestrated a piece or written a piece for two treble and two bass instruments. Or I've, right. I've never done anything like that. It was a, a purely practical decision. Um, and I know, a, you know, really fantastic clarinetists. I think I also sent you a recording of Eric Mandat, um, who's emeritus from Southern Illinois uh, University at Carbondale. Um, fantastic player, uh, and he's done it a few times as well on bass clarinet. Awesome. So we're going to hear Ryan Hare. And again, the piece is called Amavasia. Thank you. 
how did you come to music as something that you wanted to pursue for your life? Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Um, you know, when I was a little kid, they had actually bought my older sister uh, an organ at somewhere like Toys R Us. So it was this little, you know, two and a half octave organ. Um, and I know I was just fascinated with it from the time I was a really little kid because um, I, I, don't, I don't know how many people have these memories, but I have memories of when I was a really little kid. I can remember some, in retrospect, really bizarre things from before I could talk. Mm-hmm. Um, like my mom dropping me one day. (laughs) I mean, that's not a good memory, but that's... (laughs) Well, yeah, I just, you know, it might explain a few things to people that know me a little better. Um, then you might know me from a podcast, but yeah, I distinctly remember my mom picking me up and trying to, you know, do that, that cool experienced mom thing. Cause I was the second kid where you like oyster could kind of throw your kid onto your hip and I didn't stick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it just fell down. <laughs> um, but one of my other, my, my, I guess more pleasant childhood memories would be of, uh, that organ that they had bought for my older sister and just, you know, I didn't read music, uh, was not from a musical family. And I very distinctly remember my mom coming around the corner and looking at me and saying like, it was, it was a great idea. This was going to be really fun. And I'm sure you as a parent have, you know, great ideas, unquote, that you, you tell your kids to do like, wouldn't yeah. it be fun if we picked up all the toys? And your kids are like, no, dad, you're lame. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so my mom comes around the corner and she says, hey, hey, why don't you try something for me? How about you try just playing one note at a time? <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, mom needed some quiet, obviously. Um, I wasn't, it was, yeah. it was yet another one of those dumb parental ideas that I'm sure didn't take. But I had always just been fascinated with that. I can remember, you know, when I was old enough to, quote, make a choice about what I wanted to do, that I would always go to the basketball games with my dad. And, and if I ever said no, he'd remind me, the band is going to be there. And he'd be like, oh yeah, I'm going to the basketball game. Huh. So I've, I've just always, you know, loved music and I've always loved sound. Um, and you know, like I say, I wasn't from a very musical family. Uh, I didn't go to a, my grade school had a band program, but you actually missed class to be in band. And that certainly was not going to happen, um, in my, in my household. So, uh, I think around the time I was 10, I started taking flute lessons at the mall music store. And got into band in high school and, you know, just really always loved it. Always loved, uh, you know, singing in the choir and always loved playing on that organ. And then, of course, having my own real actual instrument and learning how to read notation. It was really shortly after I learned how music notation worked that I started to write down, you know, my my little compositional ideas I had. And then, you know, I kept doing that through... Uh, junior high, high school, and um, had really known that I wanted to be a music major. I don't know. There was probably a point about halfway through high school where I didn't know whether I wanted to write music or words. Um, But by the time I went to high school, um, you know, as a high school player, I was a really good flutist. Um, It just seemed to me that 
at that point, you know, as, as the all wise and knowing high school senior that I was, um, that I knew when you played flute, it had to be perfect, had to be in tune, had to be in tempo, had to be expressive, your sound had to be beautiful. But what I absolutely did not understand was, you know, did Mahler really hear 45 minutes of music in his head and just write it down as he went along? Um, you know, that question of how do I take, you know, how do I take this two minute piece I wrote and turn it into a real piece? You know, how do I make it eight minutes long? Or, so it just seemed to me, right. um, and the, the, you know, this is a pattern, right? So I, I was a composition major because I knew I could still play flute. And as a matter of fact, the uh, bachelor of music requires that you play your instrument, Right. Um, so that was yep. fine. Mm-hmm. And I, I knew, <laughs> right. I knew I wanted to keep playing and I knew I wanted to keep composing. Um, and then, you know, honestly, it was my first week of undergrad and I get to school and there are posters up in the music building for two faculty that were having a computer music concert. And again, this is a time I'm not, I'm not as old as dirt. I'm, um, you know, I'm mid forties. Uh, this was at a time when a computer wasn't a household appliance like indoor plumbing or a toaster. So, you know, I'd had a little experience at my, you know, I took the basic programming class in high school and typed in on the monochrome Mm -hmm. monitor. Um, and I think in my seventh or eighth grade class, we had one computer for the whole school that you played, you know, supposedly educational video games on, um, you know, you're the pioneer. Press the Z key to fire your gun at the deer to bring home food to your family. Um, so at that point, you know that the concept, Man, the original you, Oregon Trail. Yes, that that was likely what the game was, honestly, in monochrome. Yeah. Um, so, you know, just the idea that a computer had anything to do with music, when to me music was you put these three pieces of metal together and you blow on one end and wiggle your fingers and voila, out comes Mozart. Um, just the idea, like what the heck does a computer even have to do with music? It's that same thing, that same complete mystery, like, okay, flute playing, it's got to be perfect and beautiful, great. Composing, how do you make this 30 seconds a 15 minute long movement. How do you do that? It was the same kind of mystery. We're like, okay, I know there's tricks. You know, they, they assured me at my audition, I was assured that your teacher can teach you the tricks that will make 30 seconds into a nine minute long piece. Um, but that same mystery about, okay, that part I get now, how, what does the computer have to do with music? And that's what, you know, that on top of being the daughter of a chemical engineer, who um, was always really encouraged in science, I think drew me um, to doing electronic music, um, you know, just because it's so fascinating uh, sonically and technologically. Awesome. So before we go, can you tell everyone where they can find more of your music and also where they can connect with you online? As far as connecting with me, I do have a website, lindaantas.com, all one word, no dot between the Linda and the Antas. And the last name is spelled A-N-T like the insect, A-S like the word as, A-N-T-A-S, Antas. Um, I'm also on SoundCloud. So my website has links where you can email me. Uh, And I'm on SoundCloud and I'm on Facebook, although less and less 
as time goes by, but SoundCloud or um, my website would have contact info, my, my uni address or my Gmail is lynda.antos at gmail.com. Cool. Thanks so much for doing this, Linda. Well, thanks for asking. It was really fun. I love that you stumped me on a question or two about my own music. That was awesome. <laughs> I wasn't trying to. <laughs> I know I should have studied this is, harder. This isn't one of those studied. gotcha podcasts. No, really it's not. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about adjective new music or lexical tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.